institute of prayer as we come to your word as we thank you for it lord we thank you for a chance to take some time to look at your revelation and your word and uh, we pray that in doing so it would change us uh, that you speak in the inner parts of our being lord uh, that we'd be renewed and strengthened and that we could move forward into a deeper relationship with you in jesus name amen amen good morning Good morning. Well, very nice to see you all. For uh, those who I don't know, I'm, I'm Mark. I'm part of the preaching and teaching team here. And um, some of you will know we're carrying on in a series called Devoted. Uh, where we're looking at just a few verses and acts about the kind of um, outpouring of the lifestyle of the new Christian church um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the fact that they were devoted to a number of things. And Mark talked to us last week about uh, devoted to miracles or maybe that miracles are the outpouring that happens when we are devoted to a number of other things. And hopefully when my slides come up in a second, you'll see that we're thinking about today to being devoted to breaking bread. So let me just remind you of the, the, the key text that we're looking at, which is, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then it says a couple of verses on, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Uh, so we see there's a few things that are defining the life of the early church, and one of them is this idea of breaking uh, bread. And that means more than just eating together in a community, but it means also communion. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, both, but more um, about communion itself. Uh, I don't know if you think day-to-day -day very much about what are the marks of a true church. Uh, I mean, it's probably not something we think about because we would see ourselves as a, a true church, and indeed we are. Uh, but, you know, what is it? Is it perhaps to do with the, the building or the fact that we uh, sing and worship or pray uh, or that we read and study the Bible or meet in small groups? And those things are definitely things that you would see in a well-functioning church, but they're not the core sort of marks um, of a church. And throughout history, um, people have thought really there are two key areas that need to be in place to mark a true church. One is the declaration of the gospel message. So that actually there would be an honest, uh, unadulterated sharing of the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitutionary atonement for your sin. And the second thing is correct administration of the sacraments. Now, that might sound like a sort of slightly highfalutin term, or ordinances, as they're sometimes called. And uh, in the Christian life, there are only two of those, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so if you think about it, for all the different things that go on in the life of a church and have done throughout history, really there are only two sort of official ordinances of a true Christian church that people would be baptized when they believe and that they would observe um, the Lord's Supper. Now, neither of those things will save you, uh, but they are a key part of the Christian life, and they do have a deep spiritual uh, significance. So today we turn to thinking about the Lord's Supper and this idea of the, the people of God meeting together to break bread and what that means. Now, meals are a very important uh, part of the Christian life and indeed the life throughout the whole of the Bible. Uh, I mean, if you're familiar with the whole story of salvation and the story from Genesis through to Revelation, there is a lot of food and drink and eating. And Jesus did a lot of his business with people over meals. Uh, you see often in the Gospels that Jesus would be at parties. I mean, one of the first things that you see Jesus with his disciples going to is a wedding, uh, and they run out of refreshments, and Jesus quickly uh, renews the wine supplies by turning huge amounts of water into wine. Uh, that Jesus is often at meals with people and inviting people to meals and saying, I need to dine at your house this evening. And in fact, he wasn't really liked much by the Pharisees for this. And uh, they called him a, a glutton and a wine bibber. 
And uh, in fact, you know, they weren't very happy with anything. Jesus said, well, you're never happy because John the Baptist came and he didn't, uh, he ate locusts and honey and lived out in the desert, leaving us a sort of ascetic. And you weren't happy with him. He thought he had a demon. And now I eat and drink with people, you know, and uh, you call me a glutton and uh, you're never happy. But Jesus spent a lot of time eating and drinking with people around table. Now, so what I want to think about today is we think about communion. And we're really pretty familiar with communion, I guess, aren't we? I mean, many of us have been in church for some time. We'll have taken communion and number of times and we'll be clear on what it's representing. Um, But I think I want to try and position where does it fit in the whole architecture and story of the history of salvation. And so I want to look at this through five meals in the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. So from the beginning of time to the end of the age, there are five significant meals, I think, in the history um, of salvation. And they cover the past, the now, and also something to be consummated in the future. And you can see the five meals are divided across time. So meal number one, first of all. Well, I wonder what you think that might be. Well, that's actually, I mean, you're probably guessing, well, there's lots of meals in the Bible, so which ones are you going to go for? So I'm going to start with a meal that happens in uh, Genesis uh, 1, and, uh, well, Genesis 3, actually. But we read in Genesis 1 that God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, by the way, I was very excited to find out from Mark this week that in the new year, we begin a series on looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And uh, it's all in there. I mean, really, the, the, there was such a core 11 chapters. So I'm very much looking forward to that, to that series. But uh, in chapter 1, we hear that God creates the heaven and earth. He gives Adam and Eve the whole world um, as a gift to steward, if you like, king and queen of creation. Uh, that they are equal um, before God with equal dignity and value, different roles made in his image in the likeness of God. And they're told they can eat anything they want, with one exception. Free to enjoy all the bounty of creation, with one exception, which is they mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, uh, we know that Adam and Eve uh, disobey God and eat from that forbidden tree. And that first meal brought sin into the world. And indeed, the other meals are an undoing of that illegal meal. Right from the beginning, God had a plan to redeem us and not leave us in the state that Adam and Eve put us in. And so the next thing that happens is God selects a a man, and I'm I'm picking certain moments here throughout throughout the history of salvation, but um, Abraham, who he calls out uh, to be a great nation, and uh, his grandson Jacob, or Israel, ends up uh, in Egypt with a family of around 60 or so people that suddenly becomes 2 million over the course of a number of years, and they find themselves under the oppression of a godless king, a pharaoh. But Moses is raised up by God to release the people from slavery. And after many warnings and judgments uh, that God brings um, on the Egyptian people, he warns them with a final last judgment that if they don't repent and let the people go, that actually there will be death throughout the nation for every firstborn male in every household. One exception will be that households who in faith get a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood over their doorposts that the angel of death will pass over those houses and that they will be um, excluded from this judgment. And that leads to the second meal, which is the Passover celebration. And uh, so this idea that there is a meal that Jews observe um, every year, and in fact, it's really interesting. It's uh, some of the, uh, some of you know, the holiday lights we've got. Uh, we had a, a large Jewish group come in the summer uh, of about 30 people, uh, Orthodox Jews, who came to, to live there for a couple of weeks. Fascinating to see them uh, in operation and the way they live, the way their whole life is rhythmically moving up towards the Sabbath and then moving down from it. And so much concern with eating and drinking, and Debbie and I were drawn in to have sort of 
pickled herring and drambuie at 11 in the morning and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, but the point is, every, it doesn't sound a great combo, and it wasn't. But, uh, but every year, the Jewish people observe the Passover. And they were remembering, they were remembering this time where God had saved them from this judgment. And this carried on for a few thousand years, where every year the people of God would celebrate the Passover, the second meal. So the first meal with Adam and Eve ends in in unbelief and sin. The second meal, eaten by God's children in faith, shed blood to cover them and take away their sin. So until the time of Jesus, the Passover is observed. Now, when Jesus came into human history, so the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and comes into human history, if you think about it, for the 33 years of Jesus' life, he will have observed the Passover meal every year. Jesus was and is a Jew. And uh, so every year he will have observed the Passover. And as I've been preparing this, I was thinking about the realization for Jesus as he is taking Passover that it's about him. The the personal and cosmic significance that Jesus must have had to experience every year uh, through the symbolism of Passover must have been striking. Uh, But now, uh, in the history of salvation, Jesus is a young man in his 30s at the end of his three-year ministry at the time when the Passover would take place. Early spring, the month of Nisan, uh, the middle of that month, sort of around April time. Um, And the disciples are getting ready to have the Passover meal with Jesus. They don't realize this is the last meal that they are going to eat with him before he is crucified. Uh, Jesus is leading the Passover celebration uh, because uh, he is the... uh, the uh, rabbi, and uh, he is leading his uh, disciples through Passover, uh, which we know as the Last Supper. And uh, here's Da Vinci's Last Supper, and we, we know that sort of final meal that Jesus had, a Passover meal. Probably, I mean, although it's artistically impressive, it's probably not super accurate because they would have been lying down, I guess. But, uh, but the point is, you know, we're familiar with this idea of the Last Supper. And Jesus, we, we learn in Luke 22 that Jesus is going through all of the uh, prescriptions in Exodus 12 for leading the, the Passover meal. But then, dramatically, he deviates from thousands of years of history and says something that has never been said before. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is all these Passover meals throughout history um, and all the ones that he shared over the last three years with the disciples, actually, they're all about him. Now, we can probably, you know, take a moment to try and think how the disciples would feel. We're so familiar with uh, communion and the Lord's Supper, the startling realization uh, that they would have at this point that he is the sacrificial lamb and that the third meal is about to be fulfilled. 
Now, if you've never taken a Passover, by the way, I would, I would recommend it. A number of years ago, I mean, maybe some have. Yeah, I can see a few nods. Uh, we, we had a Passover with a, a group and uh, really just interesting to see how much symbolism there, there was there that, of course, the Jews still can't see, but uh, is all in there. And uh, I mean, worth actually, if you get a chance, to actually go through and walk through a whole Passover meal one Easter, perhaps. But... Uh, Anyhow, Jesus is shortly to be executed. He dies, we know, three days later, rises from death, and then immediately the church start gathering to have these meals, to repeat this meal that Jesus had. Now, not Passover, but this um, breaking of bread and wine, um, as Jesus had inaugurated um, at uh, the Last Supper. Now, unfortunately, this comes pretty quickly into abuse um, because they, they're meeting in the context of a large meal. So they weren't meeting just as we would do with small pieces of bread and wine. They would have it in the context of a, a larger meal. And quite quickly, abuse comes in. Paul writes to the Corinthians about this thing. You know, what's happening is some of you are coming early, eating all the food, getting drunk. Others are coming later, not getting anything. And so over time, the, the sort of um, the, 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 the communal and the spiritual got separated into, the, into what we do now. But this is the, the fourth meal, communion as we understand it now. And that's the meal we have in the present. Now, Paul gives further instructions, actually, because he um, takes Jesus' uh, words, but in 1 Corinthians he adds something. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul adds that we should be doing this to remember Jesus. And we're remembering his death, what he's paid for us, and uh, everything that he's done for us until he returns. So not forever, but until he returns. Now, what's interesting and noteworthy is that there aren't any specific prescriptions on how to take communion. So it doesn't talk about how the bread should be broken up, whether it should be in small pieces or whether we should take one loaf and separate it between us. Um, it doesn't uh, specify too many details about the wine. It says the fruit of the vine. And I think, incidentally, that means that wine or grape juice are both okay because they're both fruit of the vine, but it's got to be red. Because the symbolism is Jesus' blood. And this is not an area where creativity is required. Now, God is a God of creativity, but there are limits, I think. And there is a certain reverence that we should have. So, you know, I've heard of some people experimenting with, you know, bagels and coke around the campfire. I don't think that's communion. But uh, we're remembering the blood shed for us. In fact, Debbie and I once took communion somewhere. I can't remember where it was, where the wine was white. And it just felt wrong. I mean, I, I know that, that it's still you, it's happening inside your mind and spirit, but there's something about, you know, red wine symbolizing um, the shed blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22 says. There's also nothing about frequency. 
so I mean, the reason I mention this is sometimes we have in our own mind our preferences, you know, about how we would like communion to take place in terms of the, the mechanism uh, or maybe the frequency. Now, in honesty, throughout the history of the church, probably the most frequent time period has been weekly, but some churches will observe quarterly. We tend to be monthly, which is quite common to a number of churches that I've been in as well, but there's no prescriptions on exact frequency, just that when we do it, we should remember. Now, I think that takes us to the mindset that we should have when we take uh, communion. Simply put, we are thinking about Jesus. So when shortly we take communion, we're trying to switch off everything else that's going on in our mind, all the cares and worries that we, we have, and focus our mind on the Lord. Now, I think there's something for the head, the hand, and the heart uh, with communion. So I think we should be thinking about um, the Lord. We're obviously taking um, the bread and wine, but our heart needs to be right. It's a symbolic act of an inward um, devotion. And when we're remembering that Jesus has died for us, we're also remembering to put our own sin to death. Now, it is a spiritual act. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 puts it this way. The cup of blessing that we bless is not that participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one bread, we who are many, one body, for we all partake in one bread. We are partaking in something when we take communion. Something spiritual is happening. It's deeper than just remembering. We're participating in the body and blood of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Now, this is where we might differ with our Roman Catholic friends, um, where they hold to um, the idea that the blood, uh, that the wine and the bread actually become the, the flesh and blood of Jesus, transubstantiation as it's called in the theological nomenclature. We don't hold to that. Um, but there is something deeper happening than and just the elements um, themselves. Now, if that were not true, these next verses could not be true. If it was only sacrament, it could not harm you. But Paul says it can. Reading on from where he picks off, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, those are stark verses. And they're saying that there's something serious going on when we are taking communion. This is not something to be trifled with or something to be taken on lightly. Now, we all know that we are unworthy to share the Lord's Supper. Only by his grace provided by his sacrifice are we worthy. So we shouldn't come thinking, you know, I could never take communion because I am not worthy. That's not helpful. But at the same time, we do want to come soberly, carefully, having considered ourselves. We don't want to partake in an unworthy manner, not discerning the Lord's body, as Paul would put it. What does that mean? Well, I think coming to the, the Lord's table, we need to be in a place where we're right with God, that we're repenting of any uh, sin, that we're turning and walking away from anything that's wrong in our life, um, so that we are approaching the table reverently. And we should 
examine ourselves before we take communion. This also explains why communion is for believers and not for unbelievers. Uh, because, uh, you know, many people will eat bread and drink wine in their life, but when we're coming to remember in this context, this is something um, for believers uh, to be approached correctly, lest we be judged. Now, we don't want to be trifling with the, the body and blood of Jesus. And Paul says here that it's made some people ill. Now, does that mean all sickness and comes from sin? No, but what it does mean is some can. And actually, he goes on to say, worse, some have become metaphysically challenged. That was a joke. They have died. But uh, this is serious business. This is serious business, you know, when we are entering into, when we are entering into communion. Now, the reason that God disciplines us is because he loves us. A good dad disciplines his kids. It's not our salvation in question here, but we have to come to the table in the right state. So, the first meal is eaten by Adam and Eve in sin, in defiance of God. The second meal, the Passover, eaten in faith uh, to cover our sin. The third meal, Jesus fulfilling the Passover. The fourth meal, the early church and the community of believers throughout history celebrating Passover, which leads to the fifth meal. And that takes us into the future. Now, in the book of Revelation, so the first meal is in Genesis, the last meal is at the end. And history begins with a meal eaten apart from God, but it closes with a, with a meal eaten in communion with God in the presence of Jesus Christ, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, this morning, we'll take part in the fourth meal, but we are anticipating and expecting the fifth meal, where we'll all sit down with Jesus in glory to share the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me read what it says in Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself in white linen, pure and bright. See, spotless, clean, without sin. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. So at the end of time, there will be a, a feast that we will enjoy with the Lord Jesus in glory. And in fact, you know, when we hear about and read about heaven in the Bible, it seems that, you know, eating and drinking and enjoying the, the finest affair will be part of it. It will be um, a celebration, a feast. So today, we want to together uh, share in the fourth meal, the communion meal, but with an eye to the fifth meal. Now... What does this mean as we approach the table? Well, we want to take a moment or two to prepare ourselves, to repent of sin, to trust in Jesus. Now, I don't know everybody here, but if you're somebody who has never trusted in Jesus, then perhaps this would and could be the moment. I mean, the story is simple. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a separation between a holy God and sinful people. And Jesus has bridged the gap on the cross. And all we need to do is accept 
that sacrifice that he has made in our place and we can be whole, forgiven, clean, renewed, restored. That's it. And that's everything. Because Jesus plus nothing is everything. And amidst all the complications and challenges of life, the only thing that ultimately has any eternal significance is a relationship with our Savior. So when you're ready, you can come up for communion. Having searched your heart, judged yourself, examined yourself, repented, given Jesus your heart. We don't take the Lord's Supper lightly, but reverently. And we want to eat it together, because throughout the, the history of the church, the Lord's Supper has been something that the church have done as a community together. Remembering the past, hope in a secure future, but having fellowship with the Lord in the present. So in a moment, I'm just going to give us a, a quiet moment just to consider our hearts before God. And then we're simply going to take communion. And uh, I think we'll take it the way that we, we normally do, which is uh, in small groups. So there's a, a table here and a table in the corner there and one at the back. So you can go to the one that's closest. Take a, a piece of bread and the wine and uh, meet either in small family groups or in uh, life groups um, as you want to. And then when you're ready, you can take the bread and the wine. But let me just read uh, these words again to prepare us as we take a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we want to take a moment to come before you, not as unworthy, but as worthy through what you have done for us on the cross. But Lord, we want to consider our hearts and to take a moment, if there's anything that is not right, that we know is not right in our relationship with you, in our conduct, in our preoccupations. And Lord, to turn from that to use this as a moment to say no more and to set our face towards you and towards a future walking with you. So we just want to take a moment's silence to do business with you. And so, Lord, as we come now to share in the bread and the wine, Lord, we pray that with our, our hands as we take those elements, that in our mind we would focus on your sacrifice. And as we partake uh, in our spirit, that you would nourish us. In Jesus' name, amen.